you are invited to come and look into the empty tomb once again. It's Resurrection Sunday morning. So you're invited to come look into the tomb. Maybe as the first ladies came and looked into the tomb on that first resurrection morning, they're coming to bring spices to anoint the dead body of Jesus. But as they come, they begin to discuss, well, how are we going to move that stone, that heavy stone? How are we going to be able to move that so that we might be able to see in? And just as they're wondering that, they come and they find that the stone's already been rolled away. Mary Magdalene was probably one of the first to see Jesus outside the tomb, thinking that he was the gardener. She said, oh, if you'll only tell me where the body of my Lord lays, so that I might be able to take care of the body. Then he called her name. She yelled, Rabboni, meaning teacher, because she recognized it was Jesus and he was alive. Some of the women that first came to the tomb, they saw angels, and the angel said, He's not here, He's risen, just as He said. Come and see the place where He lay. When John and Peter heard the news that the tomb was empty, they ran. John outran Peter, got to the tomb first. He stopped and looked inside the door. Peter ran on in, came on in, and saw the grave clothes that were lying there, and they believed. She invited to come look into the empty tomb, Come with great reverence. Or run to the tomb. It's okay, you can come with curiosity or maybe even with skepticism. Because today, no matter who you are, no matter what reason that you come, you're invited to come and look into the empty tomb so that you might be able to see that He is not here. For He is risen. It's okay, you can say it. He is risen indeed. So we come and we realize, of course, what Jesus Christ has done for us. We don't want to see just what is not there, but we want to see the significance of the resurrection. Christianity rises and falls on this event. Paul said, if there is no resurrection, then we are to be a people most pitied. He was talking specifically about Christians, but it does apply to all humanity because we know with the resurrection, with what Christ Jesus did for us on the cross, rises and falls the hope of humanity. But if the resurrection is for real, it makes all the difference. Now let's consider it for just a moment whether it is for real or not. Jesus came at such a time in which the Romans had perfected execution. He was really dead. Three days later, He rose again. And He has been seen for 40 days, He was seen until His ascension. Seen by many, 500 at one time. Some who are still alive when Peter wrote his letters, when Paul wrote his letters. If it were not true, someone would have had some kind of investigation. There would have been some type of Mueller report inquiry to where someone said, it's not true. It were true, hundreds and hundreds would have lied. But it's true, and now not only hundreds and hundreds have been able to see Jesus in the flesh, but now millions, billions have actually experienced the risen Lord ever since. Now the resurrection occurred nearly 2,000 years ago. I've been in this preaching business long enough that I can remember when I used to say at Christmas time, Jesus was born in Bethlehem nearly 2,000 years ago. 
And then the year 2000 came because we mark our time by the time when Jesus came in Bethlehem. So now I say at Christmas time, I say now Jesus was born over 2000 years ago. And then he lived for 33 years. 30 years of that uh, virtual obscurity. And then he had a three-year world-changing ministry. And the most significant was the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So, so for the time being, we say Jesus rose again that first resurrection almost 2,000 years ago on around 33 A.D. If the Lord tarries and you allow me to continue preaching by the year 2033... We know we're maybe off by two to four years. We may be off a little bit. I will then say Jesus rose again over 2,000 years ago. But for now, we say Jesus will rise again. Jesus rose again nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, I scared some of you when I said if I was still preaching to you 2033. But come on. It'll be all be okay. My point being, it's the most significant event in the history of the world. Because of the resurrection, more eggs, plastic or otherwise, have been bought. More candy, more new clothes, more shoes, even more hats. I don't see a lot of new hats today, but used to be would even be hats. And more people will find themselves in churches around the world on this day, more so than any other Lord's Day. Why? Because the resurrection matters. You're counted among those who have attended an Easter service. You have chosen well. But God wants you to do more than just be among the counted. He wants your life to count. He wants you to live a life that counts. How do we know? Because Romans chapter 8, and if you're not already there, you might want to find it. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 tells us, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through His Spirit who dwells in you. If the resurrection is true and you place your faith in Jesus today, or if you have ever placed your faith in the Lord Jesus today, we know that there are some things that are true today. We want to find those. If you've got your Bible, you might want to find Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. We'll also have it there on the screen. But this now is the Word of God. Romans chapter 8, read verses 1 through 11. Would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word today? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the body, in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the minds on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And again, verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. May the Lord bless the reading of His holy word. And you may be seated. 
you have some notes there before you today. By the way, there's a whole lot more people in here now than when I first saw you out from the baptism today. But we're glad that you're here. You've got some notes maybe that will help you along the way. It looks like lots of blanks maybe to fill out, maybe even more than usual, I don't know. But uh, uh, we're going to get to those rather quickly today. But there are some things that if you have given your heart and life to Jesus and if the resurrection is true, these things are true. And the first one is this, is that you are fully saved. You are fully saved. If you've called upon Jesus to forgive you and place your faith in Him, He's done everything necessary to completely save you. You know, if we pay attention, sometimes we find that with every New Testament teaching, there's an Old Testament illustration that kind of helps us maybe particularly with that. When Noah lived on this earth, God's judgment and punishment was displayed on a wicked world. Noah was asked to build an ark as a means of escape from God's wrath for he and his family. And the New Testament teaches also that God's judgment is coming on this wicked world so that He built a cross and that He used some nails to put His only begotten Son on that cross so that we also might have a way of escape. Noah was told specifically to line the ark with pitch. Interesting thing that we have here. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14 says this, God said to Noah, So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms for it and coat it with pitch inside and out. You know that the same word for pitch is the same word that is used for atonement. And it means to cover over. We see an illustration there just used perhaps in the covering over of the ark. It is that Jesus is the atonement of our sins. He covered our sins by His sacrifice. The Lord told Noah for he and his family to get into the ark and he shut them up in the ark safe from harm. He did not have Noah build the ark and then tell Noah, said, put some handlebars on the outside of the ark and we want you and your family to be able to hang on. And if you can handle it for those 40 days and at the end of the flood, if you're still hanging on, if you're still around at the end of the flood, well, then you'll be able to perhaps be saved. Nor does Jesus tell us to hang in there. Try to live right, hope to be saved, and hope to be saved from harm. But he tells us in Christ we are fully saved, not to be swept away if we let go. He is now hanging on us. And the highest cord in the land declared for us in verse 1 that we are not guilty because of what Christ has done for us. We are no longer condemned, which speaks of our punishment following the statement. I like the way the contemporary English version says it in Romans 8.1, If you belong to Christ Jesus, you won't be punished. There's no reason to keep serving out our sentence for sin, which says to us we no longer have to carry this burden of guilt. Christian or not, when we do something wrong, we probably sometimes have areas we know what it is to feel guilty about something, even more so perhaps now, even if you're a believer in Christ. Now, is this guilty feeling the work of the Holy Spirit? I want you to think for just a moment, guilt in what we might sometimes consider our conscience as a natural human emotion and feeling. And when Christians and non-Christians can have the same feelings, I hesitate to say that that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Since the Bible tells us that all Christians now have the work of the Holy Spirit living inside each one of us. What the Holy Spirit does for us is that it works with the feeling of guilt to remind us what Jesus said and what the Scripture tells us. And while Satan says that you are guilty, that you are no good, you will never amount to anything, the Holy Spirit reminds us that you are a person of worth to the Father. 
So much so that He sent the Son to die for you and that you are fully saved. He has forgiven you of your sins, past, present, and future. And He bids us to do something. He does ask us to do something. He asks us to believe in His promises. Such as 1 John 1.9. To where it says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, most of us might be willing to believe this after the guilty feeling is gone. Jesus says, believe even if you feel guilty. Believe even if you don't feel forgiven. And then wait on the Lord. He's already fully removed the guilt. Sometimes the feelings just linger till sometime after we claim God's promise by faith. But the scripture emphasizes that it's death and resurrection that brought about our salvation. This is the truth that's declared in Romans chapter 8. That it's the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that is the mechanism. It is the key to salvation. It is by His grace and through faith that we are saved and nothing else. It's taught here in this chapter. It's taught throughout the Gospels. It's taught throughout the New Testament. It's what the Old Testament pointed to for us. That you might consider that one-fourth of the Gospel of Luke and one-half of the Gospel of John pertain to the death and the resurrection. Jesus is 33 years or so. It is approximated that He lived 12,060 days while here on this earth in the flesh. We know that He existed before then as He is God and always does exist. But He was here on this earth in the flesh for around 12,060 days. And His ministry lasted about... 1,260 days. But by far, the New Testament and the Gospel concentrate on seven to eight of those days more than any other. Just to maybe reiterate the point that we're saved because of His death and resurrection, the requirement or the penalty was paid in full. And we were at one time, we were fully condemned, fully separated from God. I've got to tell you, I've never, I personally have never met anybody that says they never did anything wrong. I mean, I've met people probably that felt like they were not worse off than anybody else and maybe even better than most, and maybe sometimes better than most people that they have met that they know that go to church or who claim Christ. But I've never met anybody that has never said that they've never done anything wrong. But James 2.10 reminds us that though we keep the whole law but stumble at one point, we're guilty of it all. James 2.10 tells us that without Christ, we are fully condemned, fully guilty. And then Romans chapter 8 tells us, some of the verses that we've already read, that with Christ, we are fully saved, fully forgiven. How do we know? Because we have the Holy Spirit living inside each of us, as it talks about here. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee that we are free from sin and death. Now, not free from the sinful struggle. If you were with us last week, or if you read Romans chapter 7, you know that we still have struggles over sin and temptation. And sometimes temptation and sin wins out, in any, sometimes on any particular day. But we know ultimately victory has been won in Christ. We now have God's nature, His Spirit within us. So we now long for the things of God. And just as nothing that we could do or have done have saved us, there's nothing we could do to lose our salvation. I want to give you an Easter gift this morning. It is the gift of assurance. That if you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, 
The very things that we've read about today, that we've talked about, we've sung about, we know that Christ has died on the cross for your sins. We know that He rose in and He gives life. You've asked Christ to forgive you of your sins. Sincerely asked Him to be your Savior and Lord. Turn your life, eternal life over to Him. No matter how you feel, no matter what you go through, you can have assurance in Jesus. But also we find if the resurrection is really true, we find also that we are, you are, fully satisfied. You're fully satisfied. God's purpose is not necessarily, you understand, to make you and I happy. God's purpose is to make us holy. When Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest, what He was talking about is that He wanted us to have the most holy life, God-pleasing life that we may could have, not just occasional moments of happiness. Now, Many TV preachers and evangelists are very popular because they assure us that God's ultimate goal is to make you happy, to give you success, and to make you be sure that you stay healthy all the time. But you need to know that this is not new. You know the popular song, and some of you are older than me, you will remember this. One of the first early evangelists would come on every Sunday or several times a week perhaps, and the song or the saying would be, something good's going to happen to you today. It rings with the idea that something better will happen to you to bring joy or happiness in your life. Maybe an illness, health can be healed. Those with marital problems, financial struggles, loneliness, looking for that ingredient for their present dilemma in life. While many come in search for that dream of satisfaction, they encounter a problem if they have not found satisfaction in Jesus Christ. They also encounter a problem if they're looking for satisfaction by overcoming their problem and achieving a worldly goal. Now don't misunderstand when we talk about the problems that we're facing today and some of the very things I just mentioned there. The Lord cares about your problems more than you could ever think or imagine. He cares for you and He is at work in your life regardless of what you're going through no matter what. But many believers find that when they get to the place that they hoped that they were going to, maybe that's in a particular relationship, over a financial hurdle, maybe over a health problem, they still find that they still are not satisfied, even believers, because they have not learned to be satisfied in Jesus. Because you see, if we don't find our satisfaction, believers, if we don't find it in Christ, there's no way we'll find it in the overcoming the problems or achieving worldly goals that we have in this life. Doing godly things becomes a natural thing to do under this Holy Spirit's leadership. But God's commands and His law seem oh so burdensome when we go against them. But the reverse is also true. When we follow the desires of the Spirit, we're able to say as the psalmist said in Psalm 119 and verse 97, Oh, how I love thy law. How I love being obedient. How I love doing thy will. You remember the parable that Jesus told about the sower that went out to sow and he sowed some seed that fell along the hard path. Birds came and ate it up. He sowed some other seed that fell along the rocky path and it had no uh, root and began to be, and uh, it withered away. Some fell among the thorns and it was choked out by the things of this world. And then some fell along the good soil and it produced a crop 30, 60, and 100 fold. Which tells us what? So those of us who are in Christ, if we know that it has begun in Christ, it is 
a change for every true believer. Now, sometimes the change is different, 30, 60, 100 folks. Sometimes the change is faster, more obvious, or more dramatic than others. But here's God's Word. Let's take it what it says. Every believer who has the Spirit of God will have a change. Everyone will be changed. Some will be more dramatic than others. We read in Romans chapter 8 of... Having just read Romans chapter 7, that yes, we still stumble and fall, we will struggle with sin in our own nature, but we'll have some desire for the things of God. God's Word says that if you're saved, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Those who have the Spirit of God have a desire for the things of God. Now, I fully intended to preach this passage and be sure to get off the point. You need to have the desire, believers, for the things of God. And, and it is true, this is what we need to do. But that's not what this text says. It says if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you already have a desire for the things of God. Holy Spirit's already at work so that you have the desire for the things of God. Now, think for just a moment. Not necessarily about your actions or your actions this week, or, but do you have any desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and do what's pleasing to Him? If you have none... Well, it may be that you need to find yourself and ask yourself, well, have I already, already asked Christ to be my Savior and Lord? Have I just gone through the motions? Have I really asked Him to forgive me of my sins? Am I just attending church? Am I just hanging out with believers? Because what we want you to do is to have a real relationship with Jesus that brings that satisfaction that the Lord changes. Because we want to be able to ask Him... It, we want to be able to know that we have that satisfaction. But if you don't have that satisfaction, let me let you know that you can ask Him in today. You can have that satisfaction with the Lord Jesus and it can begin today if you ask Him to be your Savior and Lord. We, we like to say that the Apostle Paul would have made a good Southerner. Do you know why that is? Sometimes when you're reading some of his letters, he'll say something. He'll say, you all need to do this. You all are being this. So he says, he says y'all a lot. But he also has another term. It's used in verses 5, 6, and 7. I don't know whether you noticed it or not, but he uses the word mind, M-I-N-D. Now, we know what that means. You send your children off to school and say, now, you mind the teacher, you hear? Or perhaps there's a parent that uh, is talking about their children sometimes, says, I don't know what's wrong with my children. They just will not mind me. Now, we understand what that means. Now, Actually, what they say is they will not mind, but they really are minding somebody. They're just not minding you. It may be that they're minding themselves. So a good understanding of verse 5 is this. For those who live according to the flesh, mind the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, mind the things of the Spirit. We understand that, don't we? Believers, you have in you now the mind of God that you did not have before. The question or the choice remains, which will you act upon? Let me ask you this question. Where's the place that you find the most satisfaction? Now, is it on the golf course? Is it on the ball field? Is it in the woods hunting? Is it shopping? That's not mine. Is it uh, in your recliner? Is it on the job? Where do you play? Where do you find that you have the most satisfaction? Now, you're able to be just as satisfied. And even more so if you have Christ in your heart in the presence of the Lord. Whether it's in corporate worship such as this, whether you are alone with 
the Lord in your Bible and in prayer and Bible study. It's not that you don't find pleasure in those other things. It's that now that you can be satisfied just being with Jesus or being with God's people. Before Christ or without Christ, that may not be possible at least for an extended period of time. It could be on Christmas and Easter, you understand. But for it to be to where you find that true satisfaction, it is that you need Christ in your heart because He makes us fully satisfied. We'll say it another way. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and you found satisfaction in some of those other things, even things that are not necessarily bad, you can still find pleasure in those things, but it is only in Jesus that you can find true satisfaction. So, if the resurrection is real, you're fully saved, you're fully satisfied, but also if the resurrection is real, according to the scripture we just read a moment ago, you are fully alive. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 ought to put to rest any notion that the person can be saved and then at some other time have an anointing or the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the idea that you be saved at some point and receive the Holy Spirit later because the New Testament teaches that the gift of the Holy Spirit is promised to all who know Jesus. And the one true test of belonging to Jesus is that you have His Spirit. And verse 11 says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead, so also He gives life to our mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in us. Never since Adam and Eve and ever since the sin in the garden, everything that we can see with our eyes has begun to die, even our very bodies. But with Christ, He has reversed the process. Because maybe not necessarily that our body is going to get better, but He gives us new life, now and forever. He makes us fully alive. He does, he, he does that through what He has done for us on the cross. What does that mean? He makes life worth living. What a difference it makes because the Holy Spirit dwells in our body. Now think about that. Our body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of God. It's destined to decay and die unless the Lord returns. But praise God, it gives us life today so that we might be able to serve God. A family who lived in a remote part of the world came to the big city for the first time. They came and stayed in a grand hotel and they just marveled at its grandness and all the things that they were seeing when they left the reception desk. They came to elevator's doors and they stared at it for just a little bit because they had never seen an elevator before and did not know what it was for. And as they stared at it, one old lady hobbled into the elevator door and the elevator door shut. A minute or so later, the elevator doors opened again and a stunningly good-looking woman walked out. And the man just stared there in disbelief and without even turning his head, he grabbed his son by the arm and said, Son, go get your mama. It is the Spirit of Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit that transforms your life. Though you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you are now made alive in Christ. It is a word that means that He quickens us. He gives us that spark when you're not feeling very lively. He is our comfort in difficult times. If you're fully alive, He transforms you. He quickens you when you are down. And if the last phrase of verse 11 is correct, that He lives in you, then you are made alive to do the work of the Lord Jesus. He equips you to serve and to love God. He equips you so that you might be able to serve and be able to love others. Why else 
Would He live in you if not to serve, if not to love? Probably have a hard time talking about the Holy Spirit without talking a little bit about the Trinity. I don't know if you noticed just in these 11 verses. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit. Sometimes when we talk about the Spirit of God in these verses, it is the Spirit of God. And then also it is said that Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of Christ. You need to know that these are synonymous. It is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that's living in each one of us. And we need to understand when it comes to the Trinity, time to time we need to talk about it. We talked about it as represented even in the baptism of Jesus. as We talked, we talked about earlier. We need to talk about it. We need to study up on it. We need to discuss it. But do this. Don't sweat it. I mean, if you don't fully understand all the things about the Trinity that you think you need to know or quite, can't quite get your head around it, don't sweat it. Just believe it. God is one. We know Him as the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is one. He, we know Him in these three persons. So it is true that God, if this is true, we believe it's true. The Bible says it's true. We know that God is living in us. But these things we know. These things we know for sure. We know that the Father sent the Son. He came, lived those 33 years here on this earth. Died on the cross for our sins. Three days later rose again. We celebrate His resurrection today. We also know that the Son sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came. And we talk about it today because it's in these verses. And He is our comforter and encourager, and He lives inside each one of us, sometimes called the Spirit of Jesus, sometimes called the Spirit of God. And He lives in each one of us so that we might be able to be instructed and follow the direction that He has for us. Every believer has the Holy Spirit living in their life. So the Son, we know that the Father sent the Son. We know the Son sent the Holy Spirit. We also know the Holy Spirit living in you sends you so that you might be able to go and serve, and you might be able to show God's love. No doubt you heard of the tragic fire that almost destroyed Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, France on Monday of Holy Week. A building that was begun in the 12th century. It took about 100, 150 years to build the first time. There's been many other times of reconstruction, and they were under uh, renovation when the fire broke out, which may have contributed to the fire, but at the same time saved many statues and relics which were put away for that reconstruction. But even the hundred years for the initial building means somebody or some group decided to start something that they were not able to be completed in their lifetime. When Jesus gave His life on the cross, He did so for those who were not a part of the family of God. And now he is building and he's constructing his family. He's constructing his church. He continues to do so and we are, as the scripture says, living stones. And as much as I love old cathedrals and buildings, I got to tell you, you know what I, my first thought was when I heard on Monday of this week that the fire was raging and it was first reported on the news, Notre Dame is no longer, it is gone but we've learned since that it was not totally gone and be reconstructed. As a matter of fact, we've got a picture of what was left with the cross that I thought was very significant. But you know what my first thought was? Because I love old cathedrals and old churches. And my, is I hadn't seen it yet. And I planned to go see it. And I still plan to go see it one day. 
But in spite of all that, we know, don't we? Church is not the building. Church is the people. Those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus. And it continues to be built. The Bible tells us the gates of hell shall not prevail against His church. Nor will a fire, nor tornadoes, nor anything for this earth. But there's a, there's a greater tragedy that is happening in Europe. All across Europe as well as elsewhere. For in Europe, most of the churches and cathedrals, one times places of robust worship, they're now museums, tourist attractions. I don't know how it is on Easter Sunday. I'm hoping that those places are full today that are speaking the words in the name of the resurrected Christ. But on most Lord's days, they are virtually empty. Well, that's not happening everywhere in the world. There are other places in the world in which churches are filling up. But it's not in America. Maybe you've heard that today in America, 50% of all Americans claim to be a member. Only 50% claim to be members of a church or a synagogue or mosque. Regardless of what we hear about the mega churches today and how they're growing, only 50%. 20 years ago, that was 70%. Of course, it's not just religion that we're promoting, nor is it just church attendance that we are proclaiming. Nor are we just wanting people to be counted. But it's about a relationship with Jesus to make your life count. So, we know that Jesus Christ has risen. If the Spirit, same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that same Spirit dwells in you, we know that that same Spirit is at work today to give you life in your mortal body. That's what the Scripture said, that the Holy Spirit's doing something today, right now, today, with everyone that's here and everyone that's paying attention as part of worship. Holy Spirit is at work today to do one of these three things. Somewhere in maybe one of these categories. On this Resurrection Sunday morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or if you, have, or you are unsure, you can make sure today. I can guarantee you that today the Lord is knocking on your heart's door and asking you to come in. Asking Him to come in so that He might be able to know you and you might be one of His children, might have a home in heaven. So He's asking you to follow Jesus in faith and forgiveness. Follow Jesus in faith and forgiveness. And if you're here today and you're a believer of the Lord Jesus, but you're not quite at the place to where you're experiencing these things, maybe you know that you're fully saved, but you don't know that you're fully satisfied with Jesus, or don't even know, maybe not know that you're fully alive in Him, it may be that the Lord has asked you to yield to Him, let Him be your guide and helper, give you a fulfilled life as you serve Him, that everything you have and everything you are is His. You will turn everything over to Jesus. Or if you're here today, you know that the Holy Spirit's been at work in your life. You seeking to serve Him. None of us are perfect, but He's used your life. And today, it may be that you just need to say, What's next? And you need to keep on keeping on and follow Christ as Lord and Savior even more closely because the Lord's not through. As long as we're breathing, as long as we're still going, He wants to be able, because He is the resurrected Lord who lives inside each one of us, He wants to be at work in your life. He wants to make you not only fully saved, but also fully satisfied 
and fully alive. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. As we come into your place, presence today and into this place to worship together, we thank you for these who are gathered here. We thank you for what Jesus Christ has done for us so that we might be able to have life anew and life eternal. We pray today for all these who are gathered here. We pray today if there's someone who does not know you as Lord and Savior that today might be the day of salvation. May it be clear and understandable that everyone can call upon you regardless of who we are, regardless of what we've done. We can call upon you today and you can save us in an instant. You accept us the way we are. Father, we pray if there are those who know you as Lord and Savior but have been far away, we pray that today might be the day that we draw close. We pray, Father, today for those who may be seeking to walk with you ever closer, may today be a sense of encouragement and renewal. Ready to ask, what's next, Lord? What would you have us to do? We pray that as a church that we may be ready to do that. Thank you, Father, for how we've seen your hand at work in our body of believers and in individuals. Help us to be encouraged, ready to serve, to keep on, keeping on the things that you'd have us to do. We lift these prayers up in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.